Welcome to Tales of Northern Michigan's Past. I'm your host, Christopher Struble. Today we're going to have a follow-up conversation with Diana Stamfler, author of Michigan's Haunted Lighthouses. On our last episode, we sort of ran out of time, and we'd like to hear more about the women of the lights. So this is the continuation of the conversation where Diana and I left off. You know, people think, oh, lighthouses are so romantic. I would love to live in a lighthouse right by the lake because, you know, imagine how great that life would have been. You were up three times a night like a newborn baby. You were taking care of that lens, making sure that the the fuel didn't run out, making sure the flame was going, particularly in stormy weather. Uh, You were working from uh, March to December or January, depending on the winter season, you were working round the clock. You were making three fifty, five hundred a year in that job. And you were climbing that tower. So I give a good example for South Manitou Island, which is in the book, 117 steps. Yeah. Can you imagine climbing that every day, multiple times a day, carrying a pail of oil, hot oil. Sometimes whale oil. Yes, that weighs 80 pounds. Yeah. Now imagine the women that are doing that. We had a lot of those ladies, too, in a skirt because they couldn't wear pants. And there's some great history near Shishwa. There was um, a, actually a court case that was tied to there. A gentleman yep. who, I believe he was a fisherman, lived in the area, and there was some disagreements going on, and, and somebody went in to kind of uh, beat the guy up in his own home, and he ended up shooting the guy because he was an intruder. And that actually led to the court case, which I think was tried on Mackinac Island, that uh, you had the right to defend your home. And uh, it was there's a book about it called Murder at Shishwa. Yeah, that went to uh, he the the gentleman who uh, who shot who was who was shot actually owns a house in St. Ignace, owned a house in St. Ignace that's now owned by a friend of mine, and he was actually going over there to have an affair. And the gentleman, the fisherman at Seychois, was was kind of obviously fed up with this, and he one time stood up and, and defended himself, and uh, and that was the first ruling of justifiable homicide. Mm-hmm. Then went to the courts in Grand Rapids, and then that became sort of the universal rule as far mm-hmm. as the, you know what what are your rights to defend yourself? And yeah, that's, uh, it's, and it's a great history. They have a great uh, the the Gulliver Historical Society has published a great history, and that's the thing too. When you do these research on lighthouses, you may start on lighthouses, but you end up down these other rabbit holes. Yep. And anything that has to do with history, you know, you run into some of these things with, and I'm sure you'll talk about at some point because you and I have a fascination with the whole prohibition and the rum runners. I mean, they, they're they all intertwined into Michigan's history. Yeah, we've had a couple episodes on that. We're going to be addressing that you know, further, too. You do talk, a lot of talks on the female lighthouse keepers of, of Michigan. Um, can we go as far north as uh, um, Michigan's brutal Keweenaw Peninsula and talk about the story of Henrietta Berg? This is an interesting one, yes. So... Um, out of all of the lighthouse keepers in Michigan, we have about 50 women, which I think is great. Um, these women were often the wives of the keeper who died or were incapacitated. Uh, very rarely were they just appointed on their own. Uh, but they, what's interesting is they drew the same salary, which was amazing back then to, to be paid comparable. Um, Henrietta Berg's story is quite interesting. Her name came to me probably 15 years ago, and I didn't know much about her. All I knew was that she lived in Bay Degree Bay, which is on the east side of the Keweenaw Peninsula. And last summer, you know, we had a lot of spare time. Uh, all my events got canceled, and so I had a lot of spare time. And I started doing research, and I Googled Henrietta's name, 
and found a blog post written by her great-great-granddaughter, Nora. And I reached out to her and told her about my research on female keepers, asked if I could, if she had any photographs that I could add to my presentation, Ladies of the Lights, and asked for some details on more on Henrietta story. And she emailed right back and, and offer, offered up pictures and stories. Henrietta and her husband actually uh, owned an island just off of Degree Bay, which at the time was called Berg Island. Now it's known as Rabbit Island, and they actually have a... Um, an artist in residence program out there. And they also had a house in town and Henrietta's husband was a fisherman. And so when he would go fishing at night, there was no lighthouse in this area. He would go fishing at night and he would say, Henrietta, will you put a lantern in the upper window, bedroom window, so that when I come back at night, I know how to get home. So she started to do this for her husband. Well, the other fisherman in town came in and said, well, Henrietta, if you're putting the light out for him, why don't you put the light out for us? So she started doing it every night. So she was an unofficial keeper of an unofficial lighthouse in this area, well before the first light was ever built there. And uh, she did that for many, many years. Finally, a light was built at Bay Degree Bay called the Mendota Light. And um, I guess at that point, she didn't have a need to, to do her job anymore, but they stayed on in that area. Last I knew, that lighthouse went up for sale last year for $495,000. It did sell. I don't know what the actual sales price was. But they redid the website. So if you're going up to that area, um, the website for the Mendota Lighthouse says on there, if if you're passing by, email us. And if we're around and you want to take a tour, we're happy to take you through the lighthouse. At one point, these lighthouses, when they were decommissioned or either the Coast Guard took over, they are automated or there was no longer use for them. Some of these sold for pennies on the dollar, right? I mean, back in the day, you could you could buy these for some, – some of them even went for a dollar possibly. Right. Not so much anymore. Everybody no. understands them now. Um, but if you buy a lighthouse, you realize that it, it's kind of like, you know, buy a boat and you're the richest <laughs> when you buy it and yeah. you get poorer as you go along. Um yeah, so in the, the lighthouses were under the U.S. Lighthouse Service originally in the 30s. They transferred to the Coast Guard. Mm-hmm. And then as late or as early as the 90s, they started really selling them off, um, unloading them, because they could put up a, uh, a tower with an automated light that was computerized, and they didn't have to have anybody there to k- take care of it. Um, and so they became excess, and they're very expensive. They're expensive to maintain and keep up, but also paying for staff to be there. So you would get them sold. In many cases, at least in the later years, they would try to get a municipality to purchase them. So a city, a township, a county, and then that possibly. Well, they would sell it to the to the entity to the to the government entity, and that government entity would then do a lifetime dollar a year lease to a nonprofit, Mm -hmm. because as you know, in nonprofits, there's a chance that it may not be around. Right. It could dissolve. The chances of a county, a township, a city dissolving is slim to none. So they really wanted ownership to be in that government entity. And then you had the friends group that would take over Um, in recent years, particularly some of these ones in the Straits of Mackinac. They have been purchased by private people who want to restore them. Uh, Another great example of this is um, Big Bay Point up near Marquette, sure, yeah. you know, that was purchased, I think, in this, 
60s privately, became a bed and breakfast in the 80s. There's a new owner. His name is Nick. He bought it in 2019 um, and has totally restored that. And he's been involved with lighthouses out on the East Coast, also involved, I believe, in the Spectacle Reef Restoration Project in northern Lake Michigan or Lake Huron. So you have these different options, you know, for spending the night and stuff like that. So I've yet to do this too. Oh. All these years, I have yet to stay the night. I have stayed the night at Big Bay. It's also haunted. So um, don't read the ghost stories before bed. I'm just giving you a word of caution, or you will not sleep through the night. Um, but I do want to get back up there and and visit that lighthouse. Um, I've toured many of the private spaces, the keepers' residence at um, Old Mission and Grand Traverse. In the past, um, and they're, they're just beautiful spaces. I think you said McGolfin Point uh, has an overnight, uh, just a, like a weekend you can stay. They uh, actually, it's not in the lighthouse, but they have an apartment above the garage on yep. the property, and you can stay in that uh, facility and then tour um, the lighthouse there. Um, you could stay in the Coast Guard building at Whitefish Point. Uh, not in the lighthouse itself, but they think they have six rooms in the Coast Guard building in that huge, beautiful Great Lakes shipwreck uh, complex. Um, and some of the lights are really, you know, hard to get to. Uh, Harbor Point in in Harbor Springs, the very, little Traverse light. Um, the Historical Society in Harbor Springs, once every four or five years, offers a tour. It's $25. Yep. I gave a presentation on the female keepers there years ago, and they had the tour, and I got a chance to go. That was the only time I've ever actually been out on Harbor Point from land. I've been out there on a boat before. Um, but that's, you know, one, I actually am doing a lot of research um, just in the last week um, on the, the first keeper of the lighthouse in Harbor Springs. It was a woman. And uh, her name was Elizabeth Whitney Williams. And her story is fascinating. She was, um, she was born on Mackinac Island. Her mother was orphaned as a young child, um, and she was adopted by uh, a very rich man and his wife on the island. The guy worked for John Jacob Astor, worked for the fur trade. Fur trade. Owned the property where the battle in 1819 took place, where the golf courses. Owned the land where um, historic Mill Creek Mm -hmm. is at. And so that was her mother's upbringing. And then uh, her mother, also named Elizabeth, uh, married. And her first husband, they had three boys, and her first husband died in a shipwreck. And then she got remarried, and Elizabeth was the only child from that marriage. They went to live on St. Helena Island. Her dad was a boat builder. And then they went up to Manistique and lived up there. And then they spent a considerable amount of time on Beaver Island. And I'm reading her autobiography called The Child of the Sea and Life Among Mormons. And she's four years old, six years old, telling the story of King James Strang and what the family endured and what the the Gentiles on the island and the forcible um, polygamy that the Mormons were, you know, making their their men engage in and the treatment of the Native Americans. And um, they went from there and then they lived in Traverse City and they came back to Beaver Island. They have, in, in what I'm reading now, she's about 14 and has just come back to Beaver Island. But she goes on to be the first key or be a keeper at the lighthouse in St. James Harbor. Her husband, uh, Clement Van, Van Riper, was the keeper and he died in a shipwreck and she took over and then served from there to Little Traverse and served 44 years. Wow. 
and then retired at the age of 69, married again. Her and her husband bought, she bought a house for them in Charlevoix. And they lived another 20-plus years. She she lived to be like 96. That's because women in northern Michigan live to be like 105 on her average. Her mom lived to be 101, and her mom's buried in Harbor Springs. And Elizabeth, um, her story is just fascinating. I'm actually uh, taking my Ladies of the Light program and building a presentation just on her life. Um, because the history is just so phenomenal. And I've been trying for about 10 years to get her inducted into the Michigan Women's Hall of Fame as the longest-serving female keeper in Michigan. Last year, she made it to the semifinal round. So we're hoping this year will be her lucky year to get in there. But uh, there's a children's book written about her at Little Traverse Light. Her husband, um, second husband, Daniel Williams, was a photographer in Harbor Springs, and the uh, Historical Society in Harbor Springs has several of his original prints um, that they have there, and but just her history alone, and and the amount of detail that she remembers in this book. She wrote it in 1905, and she didn't retire until 1913. So the things that she remembers, the earliest memories, and the details, and the names. I mean, she had to have uh, either journals from her family or something because the the amount of detail. Is it, it's like a textbook, it's, but written in just this beautiful language, this um, this flowery, um, compassionate, young girl, wide-eyed, romantic language. It's just beautiful. Several of the lighthouse keepers, and, and probably the majority of them, at the end of the season, they would they would often be escorted off the lights or from from these remote locales. Um, but some of them stayed year around like Seychois, for instance, and, and these community, these became the centers of the communities, these lighthouses. Mm-hmm. Uh, hence, uh, so much of this information was recorded, like, like, like in the prior story about Elizabeth, because, you know, um, the, the community itself had surrounded these lighthouses. Uh, mm-hmm. what, what was life like for the keepers in the off season, whether they were at the, at the light or when they would be escorted off? So uh, typically, if they were on the mainland, they would stay unless it was a very remote location. Island keepers would have the option to stay on the island or to go to a mainland home for the off-season. I'm assuming the folks on the shoals and crib lights would vacate because you don't want to get stranded out there during the winter months. Yeah, there's one one of the shoals, they said the ice would be so thick they couldn't actually even break the ice until sometimes July. Yeah, can you imagine? Probably, yeah, in the Northern Straits area, that mm-hmm. would totally be the case. Um, but I think in, in many cases, um, if a lighthouse was in a community where there was an active population, you know, you look at Beaver Island, um, you look at uh, White River Light Station, there there were communities around there. So they would host, even in the summer, they would host gatherings of the locals, Um they would have to welcome tourists because they were government properties. So mm-hmm. they were they didn't own the light. They lived in the light. Um, and in the winter, I think you saw a lot of just hunkering down, you know, as we tend to do in northern Michigan. You're loaded up with a good box of books from the or uh, trunks of books from the library. You're getting caught up on your sewing. If you also were a fisherman in town, you're working on your fishing nets. Um, you are, you know, really just um, kind of a, a gathering in that area and preparing for this, the, the return of the season in the spring. Um, if you were in an area where there was more of that community, you could go out, you could go into church, you could, you know, do stuff. But you think about that in the 1800s and early 1900s, people didn't just go out and go out to dinner like no. you and I do. They didn't, you know, um, go to the movies or go 
go to, you know, the store to buy groceries. I mean, they stocked up on all that stuff ahead of time. So it was a very different lifestyle and a very different time period. And um, I don't think they so much minded just kind of hunkering down for the winter. I mean, I mean probably like I do now in the winter, I sleep a lot longer. <laughs> I lay around and read. I just kind of uh, recharge. And I think that might have been what life was like for them in the winters, too. I find it ironic and interesting both uh, that, that uh, St. Helena, mm-hmm. uh, the, the people would walk from Girl Cap across the ice. And that, that actually, instead of people from the island coming into the mainland, a lot of people from that stretch on Girl Cap would go out to mm-hmm. St. Helena Island for social events. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had the very unique experience when I visited the island. Uh, it was during that terrible winter we had, 2015. And we walked across the straits in 62-degree weather. Uh, probably not the smartest thing to do, uh, but yeah, but the ice was you know as thick as it had ever been. So what a what a what a strange strange day walking across the ice of the Straits of Mackinac out yeah. to the out to the island. Not going to uh, happen with me. I'm well, sorry. the smart thing to do is I had my my girlfriend at the time walk 20 feet in front of me. So this is a. <laughs> Nice, nice. Well, you know, and St. Helena Island had over 200 residents in the late 1800s, and now it's a ghost town out there. Literally a ghost town. Thank you for joining us again, Diana, and we look forward to having you tell us more about the Women of the Light in future episodes. I've been your host, Christopher Struble, at Tales of Northern Michigan's Past, and we also have a Facebook page if you're interested in more information at Tales of Northern Michigan's Past. (laughs) 